Jim Siegler here for Brainwaves, continuing medical audiocation for the neurologist and the trainee. Today on the show, we'll be talking about acute flaccid myelitis. For the non-neurologist listener, you might not even know that there has been an outbreak of a polio-like myelitis in the U.S. since about 2012. The media has been too fixated on the presidential election in recent months to report on this pretty scary outbreak. But we're going to do what we can here to summarize the current state of what we know about this disabling illness faced largely by children. To bring you more on the topic, Dr. Anna Cristancho of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has prepared an interview with Dr. Sarah Hopkins, a pediatric neuroimmunologist also at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Today we are here with Sarah Hopkins, an attending physician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and assistant professor of clinical neurology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She's an expert in neuroinflammatory disorders. So thank you very much, Dr. Hopkins, for agreeing to talk to us. Thank you for having me. So we were talking a little bit before we start recording about how q myelitis has been a lot in the news, but I still think that it's somewhat of a new entity and not that many people are familiar with it. Right. So acute flaccid myelitis is a spinal cord disorder. The official CDC case criteria for acute flaccid myelitis are paralysis of one or more extremities and this longitudinal uh, lesion on MRI. Patients can be considered probable cases, though, if they don't have an MRI lesion, because sometimes the lesions can be missed on MRI, specifically if it's early in the course. But those patients have to have, at the very least, the acute flaccid weakness plus abnormalities in their cerebrospinal fluid. So I think most people are probably familiar with transverse myelitis. And so how would this be different, for example, than a transverse myelitis? So I think that's a good question. And the truth is that sometimes it can be hard to tell the difference, especially because early on in the course of acute flaccid myelitis, some patients will have a significant amount of swelling in their spinal cord. And sometimes that can make the abnormality look like it's extending past the gray matter into the white matter of the spinal cord. But in general, for patients with acute flaccid myelitis, when you look at their imaging, the abnormality is much more in the central gray matter of the spinal cord and predominantly in the anterior horn cells. There may be a little of extension into the white matter, but not as much. Whereas with your usual kind of -of run-of-the-mill transverse myelitis, it's much more involving the whole uh, cross-sectional area of the cord. And clinically, it seems like, while in transverse myelitis, you'll eventually develop hyperreflexia and upper motor neuron signs. These patients have tended to have more like a polio-like phenotype where they tend to have flaccid and become areflexic in the affected limbs. Right. I would say that sometimes acutely, it's hard to tell the difference because somebody presenting with transverse myelitis can have a spinal cord shock type picture where they have flaccid weakness with decreased reflexes. But almost always the patients with transverse myelitis go on to have higher reflexes, where the the patients with acute flaccid myelitis remain flaccid with low reflexes. CSF studies are helpful in a couple of ways. With both acute flaccid myelitis and transverse myelitis, there is typically a pleocytosis, most often lymphocytic, although we have had several cases of acute flaccid myelitis where early on the pleocytosis was neutrophil predominant and then switched later to more of a lymphocyte predominant profile. So the CDC criteria are pleocytosis with greater than five white blood cells, 
we have seen in the range of, I think the lowest has been 19 white blood cells up to even a couple of hundred. And you can have elevated protein with either of these disorders because you're breaking down the myelin and that will give you increased protein in your CSF. Is there anything sort of in the initial presentation that has been a clue as far as acute flaccid myelitis that might have happened in the history, so even before the neurological symptoms came on? So I would say that a lot of these cases are eerily similar. It's a young child. It seems overall to be younger this year than last year. Our median age of patients this year is two years, seven months. And in 2014, when we had an increase, it was five years, five months. Actually, I think all of our patients this year have had some kind of upper respiratory or GI infection with a fever that lasted, in most cases, you know, more than a couple of days. You know, they were actually really feeling pretty sick. And then they come in with acute to subacute, so over kind of hours to days of weakness in one or more extremities. Often it starts with just an arm or a leg, but may progress to being both legs or all four extremities. A major concern is that we have had several patients who have, within a matter of hours, have progressed to complete flaccid quadriplegia with with some respiratory insufficiency and have required emergent intubation. The respiratory insufficiency can last for a pretty long time, even requiring tracheostomy. It can be prolonged, and we've had a couple of patients require tracheostomy. Then I would say the two other clinical things to keep in mind are that a lot of these patients have pain in the affected extremity, so they're easily misdiagnosed, especially initially, as having some weakness related to an orthopedic injury or a synovitis or something along those lines. And sometimes they can have cranial nerve abnormalities as well, so a facial nerve palsy or a six nerve palsy causing double vision, something along those lines. What do we understand as far as etiology for AFM? So in 2014, there was an increase in these cases that was thought to be related to an outbreak of respiratory infections with the enterovirus D68. The peaks of AFM really seem to correlate well with the peaks in that virus. However, in 2016, it's a little different because the Centers for Disease Control is saying that they're not necessarily seeing AFM peaking in exactly the same places where they're seeing enterovirus peaking. Now here at CHOP, when we have looked at those cases, we've had a total of nine cases this year. And so far, most of those cases have had some positive sample for enterovirus, usually respiratory, but sometimes sometimes stool. And we have even had a couple of cases with a serum positive for enterovirus. In a recent paper that came out in Annals of Neurology, I think it was maybe 2% of patients that were tracked by the CDC had positive enterovirus in their CSF, correct? And so mm-hmm. ultimately, even though it's a CSF disease, we don't actually pick it up there. Right. So the theory about that is that it's a neuronotropic infection. So because it's actually infection of the neuron in the anterior horn cell rather than a meningitis, where you've got inflammation and infection of the meninges, and it's easy to find it in the CSF. If that infection is sitting isolated in the anterior horn cell, maybe that's why we're not seeing it in the spinal fluid. What have we been doing to treat this at this point? So the really tough part about this for all of us, families and providers, is that there is no proven treatment to help fix this problem. There are lots of treatments that have been tried. We've tried all the things that we usually use in our idiopathic transverse myelitis cases. We've tried hydrosteroids, plasma exchange, IVIG. None of those things seem to give us a great outcome. 
what we've settled on doing here at CHOP is using IVIG because there is some thought that maybe because these are pooled immunoglobulins that would be new every year based on, you know, the antibodies that are circulating in the population. We've thought that maybe using that as soon as we can and getting those extra that extra humoral immunity to the child may help the course of the infection. And then the other thing we've been using is fluoxetine, which sounds surprising at first, because why would you give somebody that had this going on Prozac? And the theory behind that is that from in vitro studies, that fluoxetine does have activity against enterovirus D68 and inhibits replication of the virus. And it's the only FDA-approved medicine that we have that has that effect. And it's relatively benign, and there's fairly good safety data, even in kids. So one of the things I've sort of thought must be challenging in trying to study what's actually going to work for this is the fact that there is such a big ebb and flow in when we see peaks of AFM. So like you had mentioned before a little bit, in 2014 was maybe the last time we saw a big spike of cases. And by big spike, it wasn't exactly like we had like tons of kids coming through the door with AFM. Thankfully, it's just it's just more than we had seen before. So how's it feel sort of trying to figure out like, what might work in these kids when we can't really predict when we're going to start seeing them? Right. So hindsight being 2020, if I'd known we were going to have nine cases this year, I probably would have tried to set up some kind of prospective study where we give these things to some people and not to others and see, you know, see if they made an effect. I think what we're going to have to do is that now that this is a better recognized entity, we're all using the same case criteria to diagnose it. I think we're going to have to get together with other centers and combine some data and look at these patients and see what we think, because I know for sure that different centers have been treating it different ways. For instance, if you go to one children's hospital in Boston, you, you'll probably get steroids, you'll get IVIG, and you'll get fluoxetine. If you come here, you'll get IV and fluoxetine. And then if you go to, for instance, LA Children's, you might get something else. And overall, what's the prognosis for these cases? We only had uh, five cases in 2014, three with a single arm affected, one with one leg, one with both legs affected. Of those, all of them have had some type of progress, one with about 90% recovery, all others with some you know, varying degree in between. But one to two was still fairly significant disability. So there has been some improvement for all of the cases, but none of them are completely back to the baseline where they were before, and a third to half of them with significant disability. So I think we were a little bit lucky in 2014. We had not as many severely affected cases as, for instance, they did in Colorado. And we didn't, didn't have anybody who needed respiratory support that year. So I think probably the outcome for our cases from 2014 is a little bit better. Not because of anything we did, but just because we were lucky that they weren't as severely affected. Really key has been focusing on establishing rehab services as soon as, you know, the acute medical treatment is over. We know the patient's stable. We've got their respiratory situation stabilized. So really getting rehab services in there, getting them to an intensive rehab program. We know that recovery can take some time and that that including those services is really important to getting the best recovery. Have we seen clusters in, for example, certain areas or daycares or even families that have presented with similar symptoms or kind of seem isolated and we're not entirely sure as to why some people get affected versus the others? Right. So, so really, if you look at the acute placid myelitis 
literature, this was first described decades ago in the setting of something called Hopkins syndrome, which was actually no relation, (laughs) acute flaccid paralysis in children who were in the ICU with an acute asthma attack. So that was really when this was first described. So, you know, maybe there is some shared issue in asthma pathophysiology in this, although it's hard to imagine what that connection would be. My personal take has been very much that you're better safe than sorry. And if we see somebody with weakness and there's no clear other cause, then our take is really that they should come to the emergency room. They should see a neurologist. If there's any question, we should get a scan and we should monitor them in the hospital so that we're sure that we don't have respiratory decompensation at home. I think it's really have a high index of suspicion and call a neurologist if you're not sure. If you're worried, you know, we're always going to be happy to see the patient. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. Feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Lovira. I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves.